From busy cities to remote villages, digital media has revolutionized how Pakistan shares information. The more we understand this, the better off we'll be in digesting news, interacting with stories, and comprehending the world. This topic of digital media is very close to my heart as a podcaster and a publisher serving the Pakistani audience. However, I have an outsider's perspective on digital media in Pakistan. And for that reason, in this episode of the Misal Podcast, I'm thrilled to host someone who's way smarter than me on this topic. Her name is Muna Khan, and she's a columnist at Dawn and a journalism educator in some of the prominent universities in Pakistan. We discuss Pakistan's changing media landscape, opportunities, challenges, and what the future looks like for digital media in Pakistan. Let's listen in. Welcome to the Misal Podcast, Muna. How are you? Well, thank you. So nice to be here. We're really excited to have you on. I know this podcast is a long time in the making, and I really enjoy your columns on Dawn about media. Thank and you. I, I know you're, you have a lot of insights on the media, and I just was like, okay, I, know I really am interested in media in Pakistan, so you know, no better person to talk about it than you. And let's get started with a quick introduction. Uh, please tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I've been working as a journalist since 1995, largely in Pakistan, and I've spent some time in Vietnam. I've spent many stints in Dubai. I spent a short stint in London. I'm a graduate of the master's program at Northwestern University in 2017. And then I returned to Karachi to teach at the journalism program at CEJ. And since then, I've sort of been floating around a little bit. I've worked a little bit at Aj. And then I'm now sitting down and writing a weekly column as much as possible on the media I do research the news media um, and I'm happy to be here and happy to share whatever insights I have. So let's just start with like, a, you know, a basic introduction on the state of digital media in Pakistan. Like what are the trends? What are the changes you have observed good and bad um, in recent years? So I just want to specify that I'll be talking more about the digital news media and traditional media because that's something I'm most familiar with. There is such a boom in digital Digital media as far as like whether we're looking at people doing podcasts or people doing their own shows on on YouTube and stuff. And so I, I can't keep up with all of them naturally, but I do think so I will be looking at some notes I took. So don't mind me moving around a little sure. bit, folks. But I did read a really good report which I thought would help sort of lay the land a little bit. And this was Pakistan's internet landscape from 2022. If we look at our population, which is 241 million, and, and, and I'll just set aside all the controversy around the census. I think that that report is a really good one because it tells us like we've made some gains like in internet access, but we're still very far behind on so many metrics, in the, not just in the world, but even in Asia. So yes, more people have access to the internet. I, I don't know how meaningful it is, but when you look at the state of the economy, when you look at the state of the energy sector with load shedding, power cuts, um, the gender gaps in in access, things are bad. Digital governance, just to remind you, every government has tried and they're, again, very small gains. So yes, maybe Nadra is online, but Omar Saif is our current IT minister and he's got very big ambitions for trying to digitize so many 
um, initiatives. But we've seen that with every government. Uh, in PTI, we had Tanya Idris come in. She was at Google. They also launched Digital Pakistan. But again, there were a lot of problems there. There were allegations of conflict of interest. There was in-party fighting. Um, I think they had different expectations of it that she would bring foreign funding. I, I don't mean to veer off track, but I'm just trying to just lay a little bit of the land about what is the state, the the finer points of digital. Now, they made some really valuable points, like last year when we had terrible floods, it just destroyed our telecom sector. So just imagine how a very vulnerable group of people who needed comms could not even access any form of telecom. So just imagine where we are on, on a on a Holes, like where we are as a country. The part that really interested me was that 15% of people lack internet access or telecom access and mobile access. So when you look at it like that, vast communities that are not being represented in the news media, and that's what really interests me, which is what is the news media, both traditional and digital? Who are they reporting on and who are they not reporting on? And as a result of this, what kind of a picture do you get when you watch the news. I think another important thing that I think about is, and I think this is true for a lot of countries around the world, I want to be sure this is not just about Pakistan, is that what is journalism about right now? And I feel that journalism is about politics more than it is about journalism. And I look at journalism as reporting that is done in the public interest. And I think I don't feel good about many news outlets and what they're doing in Pakistan. I would love to understand how did the traditional media or, you know, media houses that were mostly like newspapers and stuff or TV channels, how, how are they adopting uh, to the digital landscape? Are they being on the sidelines at this time and seeing what works and then they jump on? Or is this something that they're proactively pursuing? In my teachings and some trainings I do, I always start the class or session with this discussion on who's a journalist. And it's probably the most lively discussion. And over the years, it's changed. So, you know, in the olden days, maybe the discussion would be, you know, a copy editor is not a journalist or a columnist is not a journalist or it would be about that. And over the years, it's now become like a social media. Are they a journalist? It's like, no. Are people who read the news on TV journalists? And of course, now primetime anchors, many of them will come from different fields. Uh, and we said we have a lot of doctors who are posing as journalists. It's a lively discussion. And I think I, I just wanted to bring that up and I'll, I'll tie it back. Who is a journalist? It sort of tells us a little bit about the state of the media, traditional media in this country, in all countries, I should say, it is facing challenges from largely from social media and traditional media business houses. It's a reflection of their business model because they're working on for profit models, uh, their relationships with advertisers, with governments, with government agencies, just a reminder that Pakistan's media is reliant on government advertising. And think about it, what happens? The more critical you are of government, the less you'll get advertising. I think those are important things to remember. So your hands are really tied when it comes to who you're reporting on and who you're not reporting on. That 
space is now challenged by social media or digital media where, again, on social media, you can say whatever you want and there are no consequences for it. You don't have to issue a retraction. You don't have to. It's big business now in Pakistan to have all these vloggers who are using YouTube as a space to peddle whatever they like. They're making thousands of rupees or dollars selling all kinds of stories. The traditional media is not able to do that because they're still accountable. They're still practicing rules of journalism, which are reporting, getting diverse opinions, trying to have some semblance of balance, fairness. I'm speaking in the basics just to, again, give a slight kind of overview. How is traditional media handling these challenges? I think they're sort of learning it on the job uh, based on my experience and what I've seen elsewhere. They're attempting what they call a convergence model. So many of the legacy outlets have a television channel or some form of newspaper, and then they have websites. And they're sort of using their reporting on their traditional platforms and switching it around and pushing it onto their digital outlets. So digital outlets then are doing some original reporting, but the state of the news media from an economic point of view is terrible. Uh, salaries are so low. There have been so many layoffs. Again, this goes back to the business model. If you're not generating enough revenue, you can't put it into back into your business. So people are overworked, understaffed, and really, really underpaid. I want to tell you about somebody that I know who tweeted that they saw on a social media post that maids, that somebody was advertising for house help for maids, and they were saying that they're willing to pay, they're paying about 30000 for an eight-hour job. And this person wrote saying that that's 5,000 rupees more than what they are earning in a digital news outlet. And it's and it's truly heartbreaking. So I think that understanding the state of the newsroom will help your viewers understand why the news is disseminated in the way that it is. It's truly very, very unfair. Um, and I think news managers who are working in traditional media outlets are not very familiar with the digital landscape. They're not familiar with uh, the emerging audience that is digital natives who in Pakistan are growing in number as far as demographics go. And with due respect, the people consuming television is decreasing. From an anecdotal level, I don't really know. You don't really hear of people who watch television. Uh, most of television is consumed also in social media formats. If you go through Twitter, you'll see most primetime shows, you see that they're, they're, they're up in clips on Twitter, for example. So people will be consuming that in in format. So Aurora magazine from Dawn Group does a great year every year they do TV viewership trends. So the last one that they've done is from 2021 to 2022. And it shows a drop in viewership from 3.42 hours in 2021 to 2.95 in 2022. Now of that viewership, I think it's important to say that 40% is in entertainment and 19% is in news. So when I started teaching, that figure for news consumption was 16%. And I think that increase of just 3% in all these years, I, I credit that to Imran Khan, who's really bought in a lot of eyeballs. So I hope in some way that's like kind of uh, answered your question. Digital outlets of news organizations 
in the past few years have produced some outstanding work as far as reporting goes in the form of explainers and really putting things in context. But with staffing issues, with really like who wants to be a journalist? Uh, I struggle with this. I can't sell it. I can't sell it to my students anymore, given the kind of salaries being offered to starting positions. So I'm not surprised the state is where it is. This is a good segue into my next question, which is about media literacy, right? Because if you talk to anyone on like digital media, they'll tell you like, oh, they have to produce certain kind of content because that's what people want, right? So do you feel like media literacy in Pakistan is like, do people understand what they're consuming might just be an opinion? Or are they just like, you know, overwhelmed and bombarded by information from everywhere that they whatever is convenient, uh, whatever is thrown at them is what sticks with them. Uh, and that's what they run with. And there's never any like, like you said, you know, there's no one comes and says, we made a mistake. Or if they do make a mistake, uh, the, the headline itself, you know, that's been shared everywhere, that just goes viral, even if it's a correction made later on. Um, I've seen this in tech, also tech reporting, where uh, even if a correction is made, uh, no one talks about that because the headline the number or headline was completely misleading and that's what got a lot of attention. Yes. So I think that to remind, the corrections will always be made by news media organizations because they are much more responsible and mistakes are made because of human error. But when it comes to media literacy, I think that I always hear from my students and just randomly people that I meet that, you know, this is not journalism. Your journalism And when asked what is journalism, inevitably it is them seeking opinions that suit them and suit their perspectives. So media literacy is is very important. And but I actually don't know what fighting disinformation looks like because this report that I quoted, The Internet Landscape, it talks about it that I wanted to quote from it about how the online environment is so dangerous with threat of blasphemy allegations, online campaigning, mob organizing, and subsequent violence, including lynching. This is a very, very dangerous environment and we've seen it. And I and I wanted to focus on blasphemy because it is an issue that is currently, it has plagued Pakistan, but especially right now with the attacks on Ahmadi mosques, especially, it's it's really problematic. But how do you fight this? And I think it's also an opportunity for more collaborative work amongst uh, software engineers, civil society activists, lawyers, journalists to come together. Because I think leaving it in the hands of big, big tech to solve this problem is not going to be useful. A lot of the problems have been caused by big tech and their algorithm. Um, you now have AI, which is, which is a player in this field. I don't know the answers. I've looked at everyone around the world is figuring it out. And anytime I see something, whether it's in Europe, um, I do see that it seems to be collaborative. And, and I wonder if folks in your community would have some answers. Because young people, I mean, children, 
we've seen this all our lives, right? That we know how to navigate technology that our parents can't manage. I think it's important to start media literacy from a very young age, just like we start all subjects and they progress with more information. I think it needs to start. So for example, I'm teaching a media literacy course at an arts college in uh, Karachi, which I've, which I've not done before. And we just did a fact-checking exercise yesterday and it was very useful. So we took one hour to examine the reporting on the death of a PTI leader's son. It was a tragic death, but we spent one hour going through headlines and information. And they were really, they were exhausted by the end of it and frustrated because they were seeing themselves the kind of information the kind of lies peddling as information from all from all sides. I don't want to blame one or the other. But I found it to be very instrumental that they were like, wow, this is really hard. So I was like, okay, let's stop with the journalism is rubbish because look at the challenges in which we have to produce this information. So yes, media literacy is important. But it has to come from many, many different angles. Yeah, you mentioned like, you know, what um, just like the software developers and all these uh, other people who can come up with solutions. So so in, in your point of view, like, you know, we, we touched a little bit on the business model of like, you know, traditional media, for example, is a lot of government advertisement and all that stuff. So because of that, there is a certain bias that will always be there or certain incentives to not uh, report on certain things. Right. So um, what do you feel or are there like any examples you can share in like maybe outside of Pakistan? Like what, what do you think entrepreneurs and investors should be like focusing on if they, for example, want to solve any problems within the media landscape? Because I mean, as far as I know, there is no media tech startup in Pakistan that is like solving that issue. Uh, the one startup that raised some money back in the day was Mango Buzz. Uh, it's still around. Uh, they talk about pop culture. So it's not really, uh, you know, uh, I would, I wouldn't say like, that's like something that's all, uh, you know, people that can change people's minds because they are also once again, feeding people what they want, which is, you know, uh, pop culture stuff, entertainment and stuff. But other than that, there have been no investments into any sort of media organization. So where, where do you feel like there could be, you know, something that could be done? Like, you know, is there, are there any examples you can share? I loved Mango Boss and it's found one of its co-founders, Ali Essen, has come to my class two times in 2017 and 18 to give lectures to students. And I want to bring it back now. What I liked about him, he was like, we're not journalists. But I think I think they were doing a lot of the work that journalists should have been doing. When we talk about like that they were doing pop culture and listicles or maybe a BuzzFeed-like model, I think they were serving their audience's needs. And oftentimes they were taking up stories about one that I remember was they, would they took up a story of some form of sexual abuse by a cleric at the time that news agencies did not do. And that story really resonated with a lot of people. So I don't, I know that they did not see themselves as journalists, but what are journalists doing? Who is a journalist? We'll always find a way in some conversation to bring it back to that. So I do think they practiced good journalism because they addressed stories that concerned their audience. And it was very popular. They talked to students. They had a, a vertical on, I, I'm forgetting the name, but something like campus, 
something like that. And they picked up on issues at LUMS and IVA, and they talked about this. And sure, they used humor. But let me remind you of how back in the early 20, yeah, the early 20. 20s or late 20 teens that there was a Pew survey that said most Americans trusted John Stewart and John Oliver for their news sources because those guys were covering stories that others weren't. And I, th I think they resonate with younger audiences. So I, I want to bring that back. They may not identify as journalists, but I think they're doing the work of journalism, which is reporting in the public interest. And then we can talk about who's public, et cetera, et cetera. But the basic goal is there. I am. I know that the current.pk received a Google News Initiative uh, funding. Um, I haven't seen what they've done with it. I'm not familiar with how, but they're a little bit more regular in their reporting. If you're you may remember the current for its kind of videos following politicians and journalists around, sort of like a 73 questions that Vogue used to do, something similar concept. And they had a host of people from artists to uh, actors to also politicians and journalists. They now are a lot more regular with their updating their website. And again, they're a good example because they are appealing to, they've understood their audience and they're appealing to them. Another example I have, which is doing very good work, which is a new media outlet, is Lok Sujag. Lok Sujag does fantastic reporting on communities that are marginalized and whose stories do not make it to mainstream media. And they are a news organization. They're hosting conversations in the form of podcasts also with young people. So they've had conversations on issues that matter to younger communities, whether they are issues of sexual identity, political identity, climate change. I bring up these three topics because in the last few years of my teaching, I am finding students disengaged with politics, as you and I may refer to it, and I like to call it Bajwa Fez Imran, that kind of obsession. Uh, and they're just disenchanted with that. Instead, they're really concerned about their future. And that future ties into issues like climate change, issues like their own personal safety, and uh, who they are and where they stand in this vast landscape in, in Pakistan today. Well, one question I wanted to ask you is, you know how uh, Washington Post or New York Times, like they have a you know subscription, people pay for it. Uh, do you, this is the one thing that people, I have discussed this with a lot of people who, you know, questioned me as to why, you know, I am not trying out different things, different models, because, you know, I have time and I, I can experiment with certain things. And one thing that I always tell them is like, no one is going to pay for news in Pakistan. Like, it's just not possible to make people pay for news in Pakistan because for the past 50 years, they have received it for free, right? So uh, it just doesn't happen. Like, you know, they'll be like paying for news. But what I do believe can happen is a more like more, more like an NPR type uh, model, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but NPR is uh, member funded. Uh, so that's something I I still believe that's possible in Pakistan and the, the Lok Sujag or the current, all these, um, you know, media organization, it seems like they do prop up, but eventually they die out. 
that's because there's not a stable or sustainable funding model that you know keeps them going. So where do you see that entrepreneurs can come in and uh, try and experiment and like, you know, do certain things to see if the market is going to bite? Like, you know, they'll be like, okay, fine, you know, we will pay for this thing, but we won't pay for that thing or, or something along those lines. I'm happy to hear you say that you think that people, yes, people won't pay for news because they've gotten it for free. That's something journalists made a mistake when the internet came and they just put it out there for free. Yeah. Wall Street Journal knew and the Financial Times knew that no, um, but these are niche publications. Uh, the New York Times also has gone back and forth on it. Remember, they did various forms of paywalls, 20 for free. But the New York Times, actually, Donald Trump was about thing that happened to them because they got such a big boost and they're doing very well from a digital subscription point of view. And they're cooking and, and they've done great work. The Washington Post, too, but I think they're sort of struggling. Number one, I think public uh, public models of journalism are really important. And again, I don't know how how to work on that. So all I can do is advocate for it in the hope that more heads can come together and look at ways to work on that, whether that, that that's important. Number two, I do think profit is an wonderful example of a subscription-based model that is working. Now, I'm saying working, meaning I, I don't know how well they're doing financially. By working, I mean that they have shown that people will pay for news. Profit is uh, uh, one of the founders is Babar Nizami, and I had the good fortune to have a conversation with him. And we talked about how independent journalism is possible. They're showing it. People are paying. That independence journalism allows Profit Magazine to report as they wish because they're not bound by advertisers. And they have done really good reporting. They've done exposés on, let's say, the ARY group, or they have reported on uh, businesses that are doing good work, bad work. Uh, I have subscribed to them. They offered, when they started their subscription model, they offered an incentive, which was a digital subscription to Wall Street Journal as part of their package. It was affordable as well. And I think they have really shown, which is why I believe news organizations can take the risks and try paywalls, membership models, there are many examples to choose from. And I think that the one thing that I felt hopeful about from that internet landscape report was that 15, per, oh, let me double check after all this fact checking, 51% rise in internet banking transactions transactions in the year that they did it. And, and that's a really good number. So I think that once people, because people are now more familiar with online payment, I think they're, they'll be willing. I think news organizations may be scared because will people pay? But I think they need to do risk assessment whatever is required to do that. But I'm confident that people will be ready to pay. Not trying these innovative business approaches. The world is full of ex examples. European models. Uh, is it De Correspondent in Holland did a crowdfunding uh, venture and raised a lot of money. I think it was then studied also at NYU and efforts were made to try to 
recreate something like that. There are so many examples where people are willing to try, but not trying has resulted in, for example, the death of Newsline Magazine and Herald Magazine. These are two fixtures in our lives that practiced, did independent journalism and reported on so many important stories that had far-reaching consequences. And they were advocates for marginalized communities. They did very, very important work, which is part of our archives, but they could not, they could not survive. And that's such a tragedy because I believe there may have been ways to keep them going. I'm not saying I have the answers. I, I'm, I'm terrible at math and I think most journalists are, which is why they become journalists. But I do think there are avenues to explore membership models, subscriptions, pay well, all of that. And I, and I thank the profit for showing us that way. How about podcasts? Do you see podcasts? Because podcasts have taken over in the past, I would say, a couple of years. And uh, given that it's quite easy, I would say, to have a studio, and I'm pretty sure there are a lot of studios in Pakistan that have space to do the podcast and stuff, makes it very easy for people to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who you will never see on mainstream media, right? So that uh, that in itself uh, is like a good development. But then again, um, there are also very controversial people doing podcasts also. So once again, we find ourselves like, you know, there is a great adoption of new media, which would be podcasting. But then again, there are certain players in there that are in it for you know the wrong reasons so how do you feel like what's happened within the podcasting you know scale, uh, podcasting uh, you know space within pakistan i think it's a wonderful wonderful boom and also a indictment of sorts on what the news media is not doing why are people hosting these conversations of course, there is a monetization aspect, no doubt, because they've understood their demographic and their audience. But largely people are here in this space because they can't find themselves in traditional media or their digital outlet. All of the stuff happening in the digital media is amazing. Yes, it's always going to have drawbacks, but we have to support freedom of speech and people's ability to say what they want uh, because censorship in Pakistan is it's just terrible. People are going on to their own plat to platforms because A, they don't find themselves in traditional media landscape, or they are unable to say what they want to say on traditional media landscapes. So that's wonderful for marginalized groups, people who don't have the ability to say what they want. So we're having great conversations and hearing great conversations about a host of issues. And then, of course, people will step in and peddle information, blah, blah, blah. They're making a lot of money, but there should be space for everyone. Uh, so I think it's a wonderful, it's wonderful, but it's also like I, like I said, it tells us that traditional media outlets have not understood what's happening in digital. They could also use this opportunity to host their information, much like you see, like the Daily at New York Times or the Guardian with Today in Focus or The Economist. So many media outlets have their own audio podcast. They're all, all the platforms, they're covering stories. 
Um, and I haven't seen that yet in Pakistan. I'm trying to do a audio podcast myself, and I'm hoping that one of the media outlets, the traditional media outlets, will be game to try this. And I'm talking to them about it in the hope that, look, I can go on to YouTube. And I've, I've done that, me and my uh, young journalist, Stuba, we did a news media landscape podcast talking about the challenges in the news media. But I, I want to admit it's my laziness, which is why I, I couldn't really carry on with that because I was just lazy about it. Now I'm attempting something new, which is archiving a little bit more archival work by talking to journalists who have reported in all so many years under very difficult circumstances with Zia, under Zia's rule. And I'm trying to do audio conversations with them, sort of like archival, because we're not a, we don't archive, we just don't archive. Like if you want to go read old Herald issues to see the stories that I'm talking about, I can't send you anywhere. It's not available online. So this is my small attempt to try to get people to share their remarkable, remarkable stories. I've done one interview with Ghazi Saab, you know, so I'm happy to do that. But I want to do something with a news media organization. It is risky. Maybe nobody will listen to it because we haven't yet got onto audio and need a video component with it. But also, how do we know until we try? I think our jobs as journalists is also to teach audiences and get them into new places to try new things. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the audio thing and it, it makes me smile because the audio and the video thing was the reason like it took me such a long time to jump on this podcast thing because for audio, like I was like, okay, sure, I can record the conversations, audio, nothing, you know, it's not a big deal. But with, with video, like I was like a little conscious and it took yeah, me a while before I got on to like got of comfortable with so it. it's so scary. And there used to be um, a podcast, uh, it was by uh, Caravan, uh, that's the name of the you know uh, firm that used to, it was a VC firm, I don't know if they're still around, but they there was a partner there, he was hosting conversations very similar to what I'm doing right now, which is like with founders and investors. It was audio only and it died down uh, you know, by like 2020 and it died down. For me, it was like, okay, I know um, in Pakistan, if a podcast needs to work, it has to have a video component to it. Right. Uh, otherwise, it's not, it's just not okay. going to fly. So I have some good news for you, which is that Duba and Sabah, two journalists, they did a purely audio podcast, a true crime podcast, podcast <laughs> investigating Mustafa Zaidi's death the poet and they've done two seasons and it's been it's done well you know but people have responded to it and it's now come to a point where there is interest in i think a documentary or even maybe movies i understand the matkaro matkaro i understand that but also i want to say there's hope so their podcast is an example baba nizami with prophet is an example there's also you know it's just a little bit of coming outside our comfort zone and that's that's the risk and i think it's worth taking if we're okay to say that you know i tried it and it didn't work and Okay, it didn't work. You didn't hurt anybody, but you tried and you'll be remembered. So like an example, uh, when I joined Aj in June 2021 or two, wait, I, you know, COVID has screwed up my timeline. <laughs> no, in 2021, I uh, used, I did three Twitter spaces when I first joined and Uswat, everybody was like so mad at me and being like, nobody's going to listen. Twitter space, kuch nahi hoga, kya 
I had a lot of opposition. So I chose cricket at a, as a subject. I worked with my former student, uh, Brushna, who's an avid cricket enthusiast and writer and very good. And we d- we hosted three, po- uh, three Twitter spaces and it did really well. And then I think about a few months into it, individuals were hosting Twitter spaces. But I like to use that as an example of being a first mover. Sometimes, you know, we I didn't pursue it they're on. But sometimes being a first mover can be a very insightful learning experience. Uh, After that, we tried Facebook Live discussions focusing on issues impacting KP because we had a wonderful bureau chief, Farzana Ali, out in Peshawar. So she hosted them with a few people. And so creating niche audiences. I think, yes, maybe I think it worked. Somebody else doesn't think it worked. So metrics play a big role. I understand. So you look at metrics, then you create something else. But I think trying new things is important and also shows that you understand audiences' informational needs. And right now, we're in this Kind of a very strange race just to, you know, have constant breaking news, breaking news. I, I don't want to downplay that. I understand the role of that because that will get us the eyeballs, which will get us the advertising, which will allow business to continue. I understand that. But I also think we have to do some innovation on our own. And I believe younger journalists have a very good understanding of their community needs. And I think I would love to see them have more of a say at the table making those decisions. And unfortunately, I feel at the moment, people making those decisions do not understand the digital landscape. You kind of answered my last question that I had for you, which is like the predictions about like the future. And you kind of, you know, touched on that. So, I mean, do you expect, um, you know, so for me, it's like, okay, podcasting is, of course, here to stay. And of course, there's YouTube and stuff. Uh, Do you feel like there might be one day there might be just a news organization just based on YouTube? Like just they're just uh, running everything from YouTube. They have podcasts and they have a blog and that's pretty much it. They don't have a studio or anything, but they can do everything uh, on YouTube. Why not? Uh, I don't have a definitive answer on that, but I don't see why not. I hope to see, I think, the opportunities coming up. Of course, we have an economic crisis, so I know people who are trying to start new news sort of journalism-based ventures but aren't able to receive funding because things are not looking very good. But I think in the long term, let's say five to ten years, I'm hopeful about new ventures coming out and with a far more nuanced understanding of serving audience needs. I'm hopeful that news organizations themselves will find ways to to address those challenges that they're facing right now from a business point of view. Um, I do think, I think I touched on it a little, but I think the largest challenge for everyone in Pakistan is the is, is censorship and how to really fight censorship or and I think with so many fractured unions, press unions across Pakistan with so many vested interests, I think it's going to be a challenge, but I really would love to see people coming together across news organizations 
and putting their heads together and coming up with ways to challenge, for example, the sedition laws that are so easy to just crack. It's just like little sprinkle. Anti-Pakistan, anti-state, anti-religion. Those are real threats. And I would love to see, I, again, I don't have the answer for it, but I would love to participate in an initiative. Uh, Bolovid is an advocacy group, the Digital Rights Foundation. They do such remarkable work fighting disinformation, challenging these laws. But what can... What would it look like if so many more groups came together? Because ultimately, these laws impact everyone. But the fissures in society, the polarization is so strong that we're, it's hard for us to get out of our blinkers because we're so happy right now and watching PTI. It's just a cycle that's not ending. So... I would love to see those kind of collaborative efforts because these laws, censorship, it impacts every single one. It's just a matter of when it comes for you. So I would love to see that. I don't know what that would look like, but that's what I would like to see because ultimately audiences are being impacted and journalism just becomes more and more politicized and goes veers further away from journalism. Thank you so much. Uh, this oh, has you. been one of the most insightful conversations I've had. Really? I'm a lot more informed now about media than I I'm was glad. before the, you know, starting all this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you thank for you. being on you the Missile Podcast. Such... No, I, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking these questions. And I really hope that people listening in feel free to write to me if you want more answers. This is stuff I really care about. I and, and a whole group of journalists are really, really impacted by this. And we want free speech, even when it's cuckoo stuff. We want people the ability, and I have a lot of faith in news consuming audiences that ultimately they will figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the narrative, uh, narrative is very important. And I think the stories we tell ourselves is what, you know, that's how you create a future. And I think the future, if it has to be a good future, then the stories we tell have to, of course, change. And that's what builds on a good narrative. And I will, of course, leave all your information in the description and stuff. Yeah, so write to me people if you like. can reach out to you. And um, thank you so much again. Um, you know, thank you, Zai. This was, this was so good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Missile Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and will thank me by writing a review or sharing it on social media. Make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks again. See you soon. <laughs>